The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Is it just because people are, are lazy today or they're bored? I mean, are we just like bored, spoiled children who've just been lying in the bathtub all day, just playing with their plastic duck, and now they're just thinking, well, what can I do? Okay, yes, we are bored. We're all bored now. But has it ever occurred to you, Wally, that the process that creates this boredom that we see in the world now may very well be a self-perpetuating, unconscious form of brainwashing created by a world totalitarian government based on money, and that all of this is much more dangerous than one thinks? And it's not just a question of individual survival, Wally, but that somebody who's bored is asleep, and somebody who's asleep will not say no? See, I keep meeting these people. I mean, uh, just a few days ago, I met this man whom I greatly admire. He's a Swedish physicist, Gustav Bjornstrand. And he told me that he no longer watches television, he doesn't read newspapers, and he doesn't read magazines. He's completely cut them out of his life because he really does feel that we're living in some kind of Orwellian nightmare now and that everything that you hear now contributes to turning you into a robot. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, June the 8th, 2023. I'm Bob Metz and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be This past weekend saw the release of the movie, The Great Awakening, which is the third installment of the Plandemic series produced by filmmaker Mickey Willis, and all available free online at plandemicseries.com. The nearly two-hour-long movie was way better than I expected and for some equally unexpected reasons, which I shall explain as our show progresses. And so I thought we should do our part to spread knowledge of The Great Awakening, both the movie and the actual subject after which it was named. To that end, we plan to share with you some of the more philosophical insights of this documentary, and I'm very pleased to report that on that count, the philosophical perspective expressed in The Great Awakening is about the closest yet I've seen to that of our own show here at Just Right Media. And to that, I would like to add some elements of my own great awakening to create perhaps an even greater awakening. All beginning right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because, as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, I had quite a haunting yet positive reaction to watching The Great Awakening. It was as if the film was compiled from a combination of features and topics that we've discussed in detail ourselves on this show, and most remarkably, from the platforms and planks of the Freedom Party of Ontario, which has been my personal contribution to the political arena, and the only kind of party that I consider viable in terms of achieving the kinds of goals set out in the Great Awakening. And if you think that's a bold statement to make, you would be just right. 
I have been experiencing my own great awakening since my first jump into the political fires back in the late 70s and early 80s. I recorded and documented every moment of the experience, both through the documents and newsletters dating back to 1984 found on the Freedom Party site, that's the Freedom Party of Ontario, and of course through the narratives, events, and philosophies discussed on this show, just right, for the past 16 years and for an additional 10 years or so on Left, Right, and Center. But before I place what I've been doing on the freedom front into context, let's first describe and determine just what that proper context is as it is portrayed in The Great Awakening. Now, The Great Awakening is a film produced by Mickey Willis, a very successful filmmaker, whose first film in the Plandemic series, Plandemic, is described on the site of plandemicseries.com as, quote, a 26-minute documentary, which has been seen by over 1 billion people worldwide, setting a historic record. This documentary exposes hidden agendas, questions mainstream narratives, and sparks a global conversation, end quote. And that was the one that featured Dr. Judy Mikovits. And the series itself is described as an eye-opening collection of films that dares to explore the untold narratives behind the scenes. The series is accredited for being the first to warn the world of the crimes against humanity that are now being brought to light. Plandemic 2 was called Indoctrination, (laughs) and it featured Dr. David Martin. And apparently it set streaming records, with 2 million viewers attending the global live stream. And the site encourages viewers to journey deeper into the web of deception as Plandemic 2 uncovers the untold stories and exposes the powerful forces manipulating our world. And then, of course, there's Plandemic 3, The Great Awakening, which is the one we're talking about now. And on their site, they talk about how the Great Awakening unravels the layers of corruption and unveils a path towards a brighter future. End quote. Well, all of these films are available free, and the producers are encouraging everyone to copy and share and spread these documentaries in any way possible. So I'm doing my two bits right here. Now, Mickey Willis has a number of other movies currently in the works, including one called Bad Medicine and another titled Follow the Silenced. (laughs) That's the silenced, not the science. Another film he's working on is a documentary on the educational and moral disasters surrounding public schools. So there are a number of future awakenings yet to be released. The Great Awakening premiered in Austin, Texas this past Saturday and was available online free of charge by Sunday. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we plan to share with you some of the more philosophical insights of this documentary, and because of that, there's a lot of topics and themes covered in The Great Awakening that we're not going to be able to discuss on today's show, other than to make you aware of what they are. The documentary included a historic synopsis of Klaus Schwab, the man himself and where he came from. The film also includes a similar synopsis of none other than Karl Marx, the original monster whose monstrous ideas, when applied, have killed more people than any other single cause in history. And of course, you couldn't talk about the pandemic without including a discussion with Matthias Desmet about mass formation. Additionally, there are parts of the movie dealing with ESG, the acronym for Environment Social Governance, a form of fascism being foisted on global corporations and businesses. And there's a focus on the racist critical race theories being used to indoctrinate innocent children in our schools, and a brief focus on the failure to remember history and the past. 
Another part of the film focuses on the role of China itself in the whole pandemic scenario and of how fear and irrationality make people very easy to control and manipulate through either the stick of terrorism on the one hand or through the carrot of incentives on the other. And there are many personal accounts of people around the world having had to cope with tyranny. Not surprisingly, we've already covered just about all of those themes on our own past broadcasts, and in fact, many of the events and comments featured on The Great Awakening were the same as our own selections. However, what really captured my attention for the purpose of our discussion today was The Great Awakening's take on philosophy and politics, and to my amazement, they got it just about right. But my biggest surprise, and perhaps embarrassment, came early in the film when its producers chose, as Exhibit A of global tyranny, the country in which I live, Canada. So Canada's an exhibit now, eh? <laughs> yes, it is, as we'll discover on the return side of our upcoming bumper. But first, here's the man himself. My name is Mickey Willis. I'm a father, a husband, and an investigative filmmaker. I was raised in California by a single mom who did her best to care for four children on her own. As a child of the welfare state, I witnessed firsthand what happens to the psyche and spirit of those who become dependent on government assistance. Had my mother known the difference between a hand up and a hand out, she may have avoided the trap that kept us living on the edge of poverty like so many people are today. Living in fear of losing her welfare assistance, mom remained single and lonely until the day she passed at 58 years young. Her life was cut short by a combination of toxic cancer treatments and grief. Just 34 days before she passed, her first son, my brother, was killed by a drug called AZT. Hundreds of thousands of innocent people died as a result of that prescribed poison. The pusher of AZT was none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci. The reason that only one drug has been made available, AZT, because it's the only drug that has been shown to be safe and effective. Well, it's certainly nice to know that the future looks brighter. 30 years later, there he was again. Same script, same actors, same performance. These are safe and effective products. Knowing what that man had done in the 80s and 90s, I couldn't believe he was still in a position of such power. As the world descended into synchronized tyranny, I began to ask myself, how did they get everyone to go along with this? Obsessed with finding the answer, I began studying every moment in recorded history where masses of people devolved into a state of self-destruction. Down that rabbit hole was where I discovered the work of G. Edward Griffin. Since the 1960s, Mr. Griffin has been warning the world of the communist plot to overtake America. Yes, I know, communism. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That thing we've all been told fell with the Berlin Wall. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? It was Napoleon who said, history is a lie agreed upon. 
Ironically, there's no evidence that Napoleon ever said that. As we're about to discover together, much of our history has been rewritten to serve an agenda that up until recently was invisible to the average person. Average, like this guy. Everyone's talking about the necessity for change right now, particularly here in the U.S. Over the past few months, as a filmmaker, I've had the honor of documenting the political revolution. That was me in 2016, the year of my political awakening. Come on, board the political revolution. I was touring with the Bernie Sanders campaign, creating media to help his grassroots movement grow. At that time, I knew very little about socialism and even less about democratic socialism. As it turned out, I wasn't the only one. So my Bernie bros, how do we redistribute wealth through taxation without expanding the powers of the federal government? Bernie Sanders! As confusion set in, I began turning my questions inward. Are they hypnotized? Am I hypnotized? That question, that one simple question activated some strange sort of faith healing. Suddenly, I could see. How did I not see this before? There were so many red flags. going to examine in quite a bit of detail the communist theory and practice of revolution, particularly as applied to the United States. Now, this will not be something dreamed up out of thin air. This will be the strategy as taught by them and advocated by them in their own manuals, in their textbooks, and in their schools. The uh, new program of the Communist Party on this subject has this to say. The term socialism describes but the first stage of a new society that in its full development is called communism. Socialism is a transitional stage. Jim Carrey, everybody. <laughs> I went out today and bought me some freedom-friendly Nikes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As a salute to Colin Kaepernick, to Nike, congratulations on right. your fantastic choice. Thank you so much. Well, it's good to be back it's in great to dystopian be... America. <laughs> the Republicans are running with the word socialism. They're trying to say... They're trying to scare people. Scare people. It's communism. It's Venezuela, Trump says. You're, you know we're going to be living in Venezuela. I grew up in Canada. I'm here to tell you that this bullshit line that you get on all of the political shows from people is that it's a failure. The system is a failure in Canada. It is not a failure in Canada. I never waited for anything in my life. I chose my own doctors. My mother never paid for a prescription. It was fantastic. And I just got back from Vancouver, and I keep hearing this, like, Canadians are so nice. Canadians are so nice. They can be nice because they have health care. <laughs> because they have... 
of government that cares about him. In Canada, the authorities say it's now a state of emergency. This riot here swept through Canada's capital. Today, police in Ottawa used batons and pepper spray. Medical wait times in this country are longer than ever. The cost of living just keeps climbing. There's a socialist coup unfolding in Canada, and we taxpayers are funding it. In the recent years, a lot of Canadians have been watching their once well-regarded country become what some are even calling tyrannical. A country previously hailed as the most free and democratic in the world. Now, the People's World, the official West Coast newspaper of the Communist Party, ran this rather interesting editorial. What is needed now is an effort that begins to approximate the magnitude of the problem. As a minimum, such a program should demand massive emergency action by the federal government. The federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act. As of today, a bank or other financial service provider will be able to immediately freeze or suspend an account without a court order. If you are involved in this protest, we will actively look to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. Banks have already started to freeze the accounts of people involved in the protest. Please get out. Immediately get out. Intimidating people in a church during the Passover. Unbelievable. Growing up under communist dictatorship, I have been warning Canadians that that's what's coming. I could smell it. I could see it at every corner. We will not put up with this anymore. We are fighting back. Protests, public protests, are an important part of making sure we're getting messages out there. Uh, but using protests to demand uh, changes to public policy um, is something that, that I think is, is, is worrisome. Okay. So here we have the Prime Minister of Canada saying that, yes, we have a highly functioning democracy and they have the right and freedom to protest. However, if those protests are used to demand change in government policy, then no. The small fringe minority or who are uh, holding unacceptable uh, views uh, that they're expressing. do not represent the views of Canadians who know that following the science and stepping up to protect each other is the best way to continue to ensure our freedoms, our rights, our values as a country. Liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau claims to be following the science, but Trudeau's science often comes in the form of this bizarre authoritarian technocracy. Think that Justin Trudeau stepped on the landmine when he weaponized the banking system in Canada against the truckers. Those peaceful trucker protests, you know, their most violent act was honking their horns. And in retaliation, they had their access to their bank accounts and anybody that supported them in any way had their access to bank accounts eliminated. And at that moment in time, we all came to realize what was really going down. Even with Sun TV watching for any slip, he was asked which country he most admired and referred to China. The level of admiration I actually have for China, um, because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them 
I applaud China for stepping up. Excuse me, I applaud Canada. I'm, you can tell what I'm thinking. The Prime Minister who openly admires the Chinese basic dictatorship who tramples on fundamental rights by persecuting and criminalizing his own citizens as terrorists just because they dared to stand up to his perverted concept of democracy should not be allowed to speak in this house at all. Mr. Trudeau, please spare us your presence. Thank you. Canadians know where I stand. This is a moment for responsible leaders to think carefully about where they stand and who they stand with. Trudeau is a monster. Anyone who thinks and talks like he does is the epitome of evil. I cannot even believe that Canadians would allow a person like him to even stand on Canadian soil, let alone be the Prime Minister. When Mickey Willis asked, how did I not see this before? There were so many red flags. What really surprised me was, especially in citing Canada as Exhibit A for communism, that Canada's national flag was not mentioned in this context. A red maple leaf in the center with two red bars of imprisonment on each side of the flag. And yet Canadians standing for freedom are ironically forced to use this communist symbol as a representative one to defend the freedoms once largely enjoyed in this country. I recall that when the debate over Canada's flag was coming down to the wire, my choice was the same style flag with two blue bars on each side, representing from sea to sea, and a green maple leaf representing life in the center of the flag. Instead, we got a monocolored flag, all red on white, the color of both communism and of Canada's Liberal Party. How convenient. But either way, the new flag was a misrepresentation of Canada's history and British heritage, which, like it or not, represented the political roots and origins of the country. Changing the Canadian flag was somewhat akin to rewriting history. But even though Canada's flag bears the color of collectivism, the Canadian government still clamps down on people who are using it as a symbol to protest against the government's evil collectivist policies. They apparently do not want Canada's flag to be associated with freedom in any way. So what's wrong with socialism? You know, that was a typical response I would routinely get from average Canadians when forced to confront the issue. And following the unexpected election of the socialist NDP Ontario government under Bob Ray back in 1990, as I explained in a six-page editorial I wrote for Freedom Flyer, October 1990 edition, which is the official newsletter of the Freedom Party of Ontario, quote, To most, socialism is just some nebulous label that politicians use to belittle one another, even though they all behave the same and pursue the same policies. Socialism, as an understandable concept, has little or no relevance to the average voter's daily concerns and daily life, end quote. I'm a socialist because I care about people. I recall hearing one radio announcer on our local CJBK AM radio station once proudly declare. To me at the time, it was the equivalent of declaring himself to be proud of being a child molester. <laughs> Little did I realize at the time just how literally true this is turning out to be, given what is being done to our children today under the progressive Marxist ideology of woke. Did he not understand what he was saying? The sheer ignorance of what such simple words mean 
which has been demonstrated both in theory and practice, is the epistemological crime of the century. And the constant changing of definitions by the left is the evidence of the evil at work behind this crime. If that radio announcer really cared about people, he would be caring about them with his own money and his own resources, not merely appealing to the gun of government to rob others to do his caring for him. And of course, the people being robbed and then eventually being denied their socialist quote-unquote benefits due to the inevitable corruption and bankruptcy of socialism are the very people he pretends to care about. Socialism is the use of physical force against the citizenry and is about the denial of consent with regard to quote-unquote participating in any mandatory socialist schemes, from welfare to socialized Medicare, all disasters and all forms of state rationing. If you truly care about people, then socialism and any of its variants would be the last thing you would possibly suggest. But socialism has never been about the other people. It's about buying votes with the voters' own money and restrictions on their freedom. For example, if the aim of a welfare program was to help those in need, then why not have a plan that does just that? No, instead we've got a health care scheme that covers 100% of the people 100% of the time, leaving few resources available for those truly in need. But the reality of the time was that neither of these schemes was ever needed. The Jim Carreys of the world are idiots, something he's very good at portraying, and deeply uncaring about others. Notice that when praising Canada's free health care system, that is, free to users, not free to non-users, he praised it based on the free stuff that he and his family received at someone else's expense. He didn't even give a second thought to the folks paying for his benefits. And why did he leave Canada to live in the States? to avoid having to be on the other end of that evil equation, to avoid having to pay for Canada's socialism. If he loved Canada's socialism so much, why didn't he remain a Canadian tax-paying resident and merely travel back and forth from Canada to wherever else in the world he may have been working? I'll leave that one for you to consider. He's not alone in this action. Socialized medicine was never demanded by the people, as witnessed this article that Robert Vaughn forwarded to me last week. Heading chip on shoulder, and this was from the Toronto Globe and Mail, February 9, 1963, as reprinted in that day's Daily News in Newfoundland. Quote, All three major political parties in Ontario have decided in favor of some sort of medical care legislation. Interestingly, the decision seemed to have been made in the absence of any obviously overwhelming public demand for Medicare, end quote. And the rest of the article then goes on to describe how Canadian doctors threatened to leave Canada and to go practice in the U.S. It concludes with the sentence, quote, If people are not demanding state medicine for its own sake, a few may be moved to do so in order to teach the doctors a lesson, end quote. Oh my lord, for its own sake? What the hell does that mean? It means for the unprincipled and unearned power of politicians to rule over us, and nothing more. Socialized medicine is sure as hell not for the sake of the sick and injured. It was for the sake of collectivism. And as is always the case, it was the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario that eventually forced OHIP, fraudulently presented as an insurance plan, the Ontario Health Insurance Plan, which it never was and never could be, since the fundamental principles that make insurance viable is that it be voluntary and non-coercive. 
the supposedly conservative government also banned and restricted the many already existing and fully functional private insurance plans, and the conservative government introduced the ultimate evil, income tax, to the province of Ontario in 1969 when it had no income tax, saying that this would replace the private insurance premiums. Are you kidding me? I could go on and on, but we've already been there, done that dozens of times. And today the medical profession is taking out its vengeance on us, offering us a prescription for state-assisted death as a remedy for our ills, even if non-life-threatening. This was all predicted and inevitable. One of Freedom Party's original issue papers published in the 1980s was called OHIP, separating the facts from the myths and opinions in which this outright fraud was clearly defined and described, while another Freedom Party issue paper was titled Socialism and the War on Wealth, which outlined the dismal history of socialism's utter destruction of wealth and ultimately of life, liberty, and property in every jurisdiction in which it was tried. Socialism is also a war against the future and future generations. It is the ultimate Ponzi scheme, the ultimate pyramid scheme, which is why those initially proposing it think it's so great, leaving the cost of their socialist benefits to be paid for by future generations, including their own children, their grandchildren, and their offspring, left to hold the bag and be forced to pay for the supposed benefits that can never be repaid, as is evidenced by our exploding debt and deficits. I mean, these people are utterly oblivious and blind to the fact that socialism always kills those at the other end of the pyramid. Socialism is selfishness on steroids, cleverly disguised as altruism, which so many people falsely believe means, you know, some form of caring or charity, when it really means sacrificing the good to the evil. What we call virtue signaling today was formerly called altruism. And if you could convince someone that something was altruistic, they would be willing to kill their own children to live up to that false virtue. And this phenomenon has actually been witnessed throughout history over and over again. But here comes my favorite part about the Great Awakening, when Mickey Willis said that he went down the rabbit hole and discovered G. Edward Griffin. I knew that name sounded familiar, and when I did a search, I discovered we'd already featured the voice of Griffin on this show, originally back in 2014, when we were talking about the United Nations. And Griffin repeated the very theme that I had expressed in my own essay published for Freedom Party called Globalism, Good or Bad. And you can find that in Consent Number 33, February 2004, online. And beware not to confuse the tyranny of globalism with the potential freedom of something that might also be called globalism. Two different things entirely. True free trade between independent nations in which no slavery or forced labor is involved is an example of the latter. Trading with China, on the other hand, a country that produces much of its goods based on slave labor, is not an example of free trade, but of the tyranny of globalist trade. Here's what I wrote at the time, and I quote, Globalism? Well, yes and no. I support global freedom, not global government control, organization, or management. I support global capitalism, not global socialism, fascism, anarchism, Marxism, determinism, or any other ism you might care to mention. I support individual rights, not group rights. Freedom is a universal concept that knows no border, no political label, and no political restriction on the right of all individuals to freely choose their own destinies. 
Freedom Party believes that the purpose of government is to protect every individual's fundamental freedoms, not to restrict them. Freedom Party's founding principle is that every individual in the peaceful pursuit of personal fulfillment has an absolute right to his or her own life, liberty, and property. And yeah, that means your own life, not somebody else's, which is the whole premise of all the other collectivisms. In fact, G. Edward Griffin, warning about communism since the 60s, was featured on Just Right number 368, September 18, 2014, when we were talking about the United Nations as being collectivism's global voice. And on that show, he was heard saying that, quote, there's nothing inherently wrong with a world government that we must ask what kind of world government, an individualistic government or a collectivist government? The UN is a totalitarian system, a collectivism of the greater good for the greater number. The UN is a budding world totalitarian system, end quote. But of course, the inherent problem with a world government is that it obliterates the sanctity of national sovereignty and of independent local government. And in my version of globalism, I saw no need for any nation to sacrifice its sovereignty. But that's a separate issue from the nature of tyranny itself, because after all, tyranny can exist globally or exclusively within nations. So here again, from the Great Awakening, we hear the voice of G. Edward Griffin kicking off the next stage of our conversation. We recognize that government is absolutely necessary for an orderly society. But following the dictum that government, like fire, is both beneficial and dangerous, we believe in the concept of limited government. And we believe that the constitutional republic created by our founding fathers is the best form of limited government that has yet been devised by man. A republic is a limited democracy. It's a form of government based upon the principle of limited majority rule. Limited so that the minority, even a minority of one, can be protected against the whims and passions of the majority. Now, democracy is a form of government based upon the principle of majority rule. It's easy to understand, easy to sell to the masses, and I might add, deadly. The fathers of philosophy, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, were all staunch critics of democracy. History's greatest minds all observed that even a well-intended democracy can breed deception, division, and ultimately, total control by the state. Aristotle wrote that democracy is not just the rule of the majority. Democracy is a system in which uh, the majority is in charge, respecting the basic elementary rights and principles of minorities. If not, democracy becomes a tyranny of the majority. Socrates himself became a victim of this very process. He was sentenced to death by a majority vote for protesting the rights and protections of the minority. This country was founded on the principle that the individual is sovereign over the institution of government. And it's about a philosophy of governance that says that you are a free individual, or a philosophy of governance that says you're serf and you're subject. We have inalienable rights just by virtue of being human. And so their primary responsibility as the government is to protect those rights. These aren't rules to govern me, they're rules to govern the government. Like what, you know, what you are and are not allowed to do to me. 
We are constitutional republic with representative democracy, so people do vote, but we have a separation of powers. So if you majority vote to eat you for lunch, the Supreme Court can say no, you cannot. And how do you protect the minority from the majority? You write down a set of rules on a piece of paper. You say this we can do, that we cannot. At the top of the paper, you write the word constitution. And then everyone agrees to follow the rules, no matter what the temptation. And when you're finished, you've created a constitutional republic. It was Thomas Jefferson who said, "The republic is the only form of government which is not eternally at open or secret war with the rights of mankind." Now we hear a lot of talk today about right wingers, left wingers, extremists, and moderates. The political spectrum concept, if it has any meaning at all, is a measurement scale showing all the variations in government. Now, the extremists at the zero end would be those who advocate no government at all, the anarchists. The extremists at the other end would be those who advocate total government. And who are they? Well, the communists, of course, but also the Nazis, the fascists. No matter what they may call themselves, if they advocate. Total government control over the people. They are all, by definition, totalitarians. The debate is not between conservatives and liberals. It goes back in history long before those words were ever invented. The opposing points of view properly are identified as individualism versus collectivism. The individualist believes that the rights of the individual must not be obliterated by the desires of the collective or the group. The collectivist, on the other hand, believes that the group is more important than the single person within it, and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. The individualist believes that every man has a personal and direct responsibility to provide first for himself, next for his family. And then for those outside his family who may be in need, the collectivist, on the other hand, declares that the individual is not personally responsible for charity, for raising his own children, providing for his aging parents, or even providing for himself, for that matter. This is a group function of the state, of government itself. Everything we talk about: socialism, communism, globalism, and Nazism. Guess what? It's all collective society. Collectivism on an international level is essentially known as globalism, which is often promoted as a framework for unity and sustainability. Under the guise of philanthropy, the leaders of the globalist movement leverage every possible crisis to advance their plan to replace national sovereignty with a one-world government. There was a time, and not too long ago, I think, when we could have pulled ourselves out of this without too great a sacrifice on the part of anyone. But we didn't. Instead, we slept. Everywhere I look, I see men and women who know that communists are making headway in this country. They know that something must be done, and that someone must stand up to them. But they themselves do nothing. They remain silent. Because they're afraid that if they speak out, 
it'll be bad for business. They may lose a client. They may even lose their jobs. Or perhaps they're receiving a regular government check and already are too dependent upon some of the very people and programs they know they should oppose. We have now passed the point of painless solutions and parlor patriotism. Well, all right, so what do we do about it? What are the countermeasures that need to be taken? And where do we begin? Before we finally win this battle, and I should hasten to say that there's no doubt in my mind that we're going to win. I'm increasingly convinced of this. But before we finally do see victory, we must carry the truth to every man, woman, and child in America. I have no idea of what each of you is going to do in the critical days that lie ahead. It may be much, it may be little, it may be nothing at all, I don't know. Only you can answer that question. But ladies and gentlemen, whatever it is you decide to do for your country, do it soon. Do it now. Every minute that you delay further will add dearly to the, the price, price of ultimate victory. Mr. Griffin, that was over 50 years ago. Where are we now? Hearing that phrase after all these years is kind of a shocker because I didn't realize really at the time how accurate it was going to be. But we're in the middle of it now. And so the ultimate victory is still ahead of us. Who are some of the key figures behind this agenda? I'm not sure we can name names. We know that there are layers and layers of control and influence, sort of pyramidal in form. At the bottom level, of course, it's just all the common people. Most of them don't even know what's going on. It used to be that an invader could come in with a superior army and people resent it, but they obey because if they don't, they get killed. Now, if they want to conquer people in this environment, they have to do it through the mind. And of course, today, after all the technology that we have and the control over the communications and the images and the school system and the media, they have absolute control over the funnel of information that comes to the average person. And the average person, if they're not aware that there's a real war going on for their mind, they will be helpless. And as long as people are on the edge of fear, they're willing to give up their liberties and pay lots and lots in taxes. A tax on carbon. And as I passed through that idea that, in my view, the enemy is in a category called collectivism. And that's the word that applies to all of these things. Socialism, communism, fascism, Nazism. All of these things are merely variants of collectivism. That is the philosophy based on the assumption that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. That's the trick. You're doing this for society. Obviously, you don't like to tell people what to do, but sometimes for the good of society, that's necessary. We have to start doing things for the greater good of society and not for idiots who think that they can do their own research. But it's not about me and my rights to choose. It's about how I love my neighbor. You are not doing this for yourself. If you are at all like me, your own health, your own risk is not a big rational driver of all of your actions. They trick us into thinking that if you act in your own self-interest, that somehow you are selfish. 
And nothing could be further from the truth. Those of us who have discovered this trick long ago, we realize that enlightened self-interest comes into play. If you are acting out of self-interest, you soon discover that the best way to benefit yourself is to help other people. It does come back. The question is, how do we turn the ship around? I think that the path to political hell in America has been voting for the lesser of two evils. They create conflict because the conflict creates fear and confusion and out of that chaos people are not too analytical they'll just struggle for some quick answer which is who you're going to vote for that's usually the answer that's offered to them they think that if you just vote for somebody the, the right person everything will go away you cannot wait until there's a list of candidates that's published and you say hmm, which one am i going to choose you know by that time the game is over all those candidates have been selected before you're even aware You've got to get into politics at the local level so you have some influence in which candidates are selected. And that starts at the grassroots level. You don't come in at the top, you come in at the bottom. If we do that job, we will influence both political parties just like our opponents do now. There is actually a way forward and a way out, uh, but it's going to require work and it's also going to require that we acknowledge that we have wronged ourselves that we are part of this problem. It's not the government that caused this. The government facilitated it. What caused it was our being asleep at the wheel. Without taking accountability, we cannot move forward. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Unlike most people, I'm one of the few who chose to get involved in politics. And in this regard, the span of my own unique political experience pretty much matches that of Edward Griffins. But I can tell by the specific nature of the advice he gave that he has not yet refined or reconciled his excellent theory of his suggested solutions to the application of that theory in practice. I completely agree and have witnessed the reality that the path to political hell is voting for the lesser of two evils, or three evils, or four evils, or any number of evils. If it's evil, don't vote for it, okay? Period. But here's where I have to part ways with Griffin. And it's not about a matter of principle or philosophy. It's about political reality and the nature of political parties, which is more than just a technicality that most people do not understand. He says you cannot wait until the list of candidates are published. You've got to get into politics at the grassroots level. Then we can influence both political parties just like our opponents do now. Well, to which I say yes to the first half of that advice and no to the second. If the field of your political vision is limited to two political parties, both on the left in terms of their fundamental principles, your efforts will be wasted and amount to nothing other than your frustration and eventually giving up on politics. I've seen it over and over again. Political parties, now listen to this, political parties are private associations. And this is true both in the U.S. and Canada, and it's not understood by most people. Political parties are formed for specific purposes and will simply not allow those wanting to change their purpose, the purpose of their association, to something the founders and executive of that association do not want. Political parties are not democracies. They participate in the democratic arena and marketplace, but they are not democracies any more than any individual can claim to be a democracy. And I can promise you, that if any people tried to influence Freedom Party to become a socialist or dictatorial party, it ain't going to happen. 
the executive and constitution of the party have been so constructed as to prevent this from happening. And I find it quite understandable when Canada's major political parties, for example, the Federal Conservative Party, refuse to endorse any candidates with a freedom philosophy, such as our own Salim Mansour or someone like Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, who both found themselves in line with the People's Party of Canada. The Conservative Party has never been about freedom or even about conservatism. So, you either have to form your own party or completely, and I mean completely, from top to bottom, take over an existing party, at which point you would effectively have formed another party. And whether Donald Trump can pull that off with the Republican Party is a question yet to be resolved, but if he does it, it'll be a first. And when Griffin said that the political spectrum concept, if it has any meaning at all, he should have stopped right there, because the political spectrum does not exist in reality which led him, as it has so many, to define this non-existent spectrum as a measurement scale showing all the variations in government, extremists at the zero end of no government at all, and anarchists and extremists at the other end who advocate total government. Well, he effectively described the libertarian anarchist concept of the spectrum, another misrepresentation of political reality. More freedom through less government was the popular slogan used by libertarians and conservatives alike, and each meant something kind of different by that. But there is your simplistic sliding scale expressed verbally. The determination of quote-unquote how much government we need is not to be found on any kind of graduated scale. No different than good and evil, right and wrong, dead or alive. You won't find that on any graduated scale. Some things are black and white, and in politics, those things are distinguished by the labels left and right. A binary polarity, not a spectrum. But if there's one point I'm entirely behind, it's the recognition that the debate is not between conservatives and liberals. The real debate is between individualism and collectivism. And collectivism sits on the left, and individualism is just on the right. The masses of humanity have been slapped awake uh, in a very short period of time to where now it has created a domino effect of awareness all across the planet. People cannot go back into the matrix now. They can't. A lot of people are trying to, and they can't. We have the right as citizens in this country to abolish government and create a new one. And that is the authority that has been given to us. It is written in our documents. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, the Declaration of Human Rights. We have indelible rights, and the basis of those rights are our freedoms. And if we don't have that, we don't have life. And so we have to awaken, we have to arise, we have to fight. What is happening in our backyard today, I experienced as an 11-year-old. I remember vividly. All the promises that a guy named Castro gave on how 99% of the people swallow the pill. He was going to save Cuba. I remember how he promised to the farmers, to the Guajiros, that you're going to own the land. I remember all the promises that we hear today. 
about free education and free health care and free land. And my God, no freedom. When I started to realize, like, wow, freedom's a polarizing concept for some reason. Thought this was America. Is this America? It is? Okay. World's different than I thought. So my fear was, I'm going to, I could lose everything. I could lose my audience. I could lose my business. But I knew, especially having a son come into the world, I am imprinting something on his beautiful, innocent, fragile psyche and heart. I'm imprinting the man that I am, or I'm imprinting a hollow shell of the man that I refuse to be. And I knew in that moment, I'm willing to risk losing everything to do that. I would rather pick up cans on the side of the highway to feed my family than to live out of alignment with my truth and betray my son. As Americans today, we are truly a privileged people in a privileged land. But with our blessings come responsibilities, and with responsibilities come risks. The challenge of our time is that we must accept both the responsibilities of our blessings and the risks involved in defending them for ourselves and for future generations. And we must do this without hesitation. If we are to be worthy benefactors, of that precious heritage of freedom passed on to us through the epic sacrifices of those who have gone before. Now that is not flag-waving and it is not cliched patriotism. That's a simple statement of the obligations of citizenship in this glorious land, our land, which with God's help we shall preserve. You gonna tell me what this is? Just a bomb. All right. Just in case the first one doesn't do the job, here's the second one. The wick on it. Oh. Tape it up. Hey. Okay, excuse me, everyone. I'm gonna blow the door. So when I tell you to get down, make sure you do it. Make a wish. Press 4 to locate your account representative. Press... Huh, Maggie, I didn't expect you here. You're a computer. Of course. What did you think I was? Yeah, I'll shut him up. What are you doing? Maggie, stop him! Put him down. Thank you, Maggie. Now, is there anything I can do for you? 
Let's get out of here. I thought you were Guy. Press two for account balances. Press three. I can't. You're a fuser. You bucked the system. I know. And the truth? I'm afraid. If I go out there uncoded, I won't survive. Of course you will. Come on, James. I don't have time to argue with you. You gotta take my word for it. You will survive without Big Brother taking care of you. Besides, there are people out there that need you to show them the way. Me? I couldn't do that. James! James! I hope you all understood the meaning and warning in what we just heard in that audio bite taken from an episode of the Sliders television series. Don't be surprised that even if someone experiences a great awakening, that they might prefer to go back to a state of unconsciousness. Fear is not only a great motivator, it's a great demotivator, depending on which side of the fear coin you sit. So, don't waste your time or get upset by lamenting the lost souls who aren't ready to be awake. Spend your time looking for those who already share your values and perspectives. When you're dealing with the left, rules and principles do not matter and cannot be inculcated in those poisoned by woke, anti-concepts and word definitions that do not describe anything in reality. But the point to be made here is that the left always gets bad marks on philosophy, and that's spelled M-A-R-X. Ends and means are always the same. The promised ends of socialism have never, ever been realized because not only are they pure fantasy, the chosen means of force and violence become the end, as they were always intended to be. Always remember that the quote-unquote amount of government you choose to have is not measured on a graduated variable. It's a polarity, best defined by the terms left and right. And if you want freedom, regardless of how much or little, the political polarity has to be just right not just some wing hanging off some half-dead leftist fowl pretending to be flying in the right direction. You either have government or you don't. Anarchy is not merely the absence of the state. It is a condition that is most often found when the state exceeds its rightful powers and begins acting no different than all of the competing private manifestations of force, from organized crime to political terrorist groups that routinely arise in the absence of proper government. For all practical purposes, statism is anarchy. And that's why anarchy sits on the left, along with all of its collectivist versions of tyranny. And don't just wake up. The trick is to stay awake, to learn the meaning and necessity of what is meant by eternal vigilance. G. Edward Griffin says, We must carry the truth to every man, woman, and child in America and do it soon. Well, that certainly has been our mission here at Just Right for many a year now, and in the interest of eternal vigilance, we have to keep the banner of truth at the forefront of all our human endeavors. And when it comes to doing it soon, well, our next expression of truth can be heard when you join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be
Good afternoon. Finish with the Guardian, Daddy. Yeah. Sorry, I haven't got the socialist worker for you. <laughs> Daddy's pleased you to see you down for breakfast, aren't you, Jim? He hasn't seen you for a while. I was having a lie-in. Better than a sit-in, I suppose. <laughs> Why were you so late home last night? I was out with the trots. Oh, don't know. <laughs> you going to see a doctor? Trotskyites. Oh, Trotskyite. <laughs> 